Hi, everybody. Shmuel Shohan for the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. This is episode eight. And today we have Dan Brennan. He's professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He is the director of the Comprehensive Transplant Center at Johns Hopkins. And he's been uh, very kind to join us as a guest today. Hi, Dan. Hi, Shmuel. Happy to be here. Thanks. So tell us about yourself. Okay. I'm a transplant nephrologist. And right now, I was a transplant nephrologist at Washington University in St. Louis for 24 years, but for the last five years, have been at Johns Hopkins as the medical director of the Comprehensive Transplant Center. So the medical direction, not only of kidney transplant, but the heart, the lung, the liver, the pancreas, the vascular composite allograft, which has been very exciting, arm transplants, penis transplants, we're going to be doing uterine transplants. And also pediatrics. So we have a pediatric heart, kidney, and liver program. So you had asked me to tell you about my journey into transplantation. So my my mom was a microbiologist and an immunologist. And my father was a trust lawyer. Um, You know, when they have that take your kid to to work kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, my mom took me into work and I was injecting mice and cutting them open and doing all kinds of cool stuff. And I went to visit my father and I made a very bad statement when I was, I don't know, eight or something. I said, Dan, I don't want to go with you. You're just moving like pencils across the paper. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. So anyway, also when I was a little kid, Bakey did the first heart transplant. That was totally fascinating to me. It was really what I wanted. My father ended up developing a some sort of autoimmune disease. So I I wanted to go into medicine. I wanted to, something to deal with immunology. And then the question is how kidney transplant? Well, when I was making my, uh, my decision of what to do, there's a big debate about whether you be a, an internist, going to be an internist rather than a surgeon, gave up surgery when I realized I had a really bad tremor and I couldn't throw the scalpel across the room with any accuracy. So I knew that <laughs> I have to go into medicine. I'm being facetious. So though. I like medicine. I like the way they took care of people. I like the way they develop long-term relationships. And the only organ that were, there were two organs that were working when I made my decision for transplant, the heart and the cornea. And I just couldn't see myself devoting the rest of my life to 2.5 centimeters of the body. So I ended up going and I was at the University of Iowa, great place. And when I asked for advice, people, they had been some big names in transplant in the day. Uh, Larry Hunziker is kind of an academic father to me. And he said, well, you're, you're going to go to the Brigham because that's where we went. And that's where they did the first transplant. And you're going to work in, you know, Terry Strom's lab or his colleague, which was Vicki Kelly. And I worked in her lab. So I did three years of basic science, immunology, transplant research. And then the fourth year was very clinical and very busy. Moved to Nebraska and was there for a year. But even before I got to Nebraska, they were trying to recruit me to Wash U. So I went to Wash U. So um, when I was looking at your publications for a nephrologist, you're maybe the only nephrologist I know who's ever discovered a virus. Is that because of your uh, experience growing up, or how did you get interested in? Yeah, it, 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 it kind of is. So one with my mom, my uh, my eighth grade science fair project was transmission of a uh, murine leukemia through a cell-free extract. 
So it's probably a virus because we've done everything. And I remember, you know, I wanted to go out and play, you know, baseball with my buddies. But my mom said, are you going to do this project? She gave me a bunch of books. What's funny about that, one of the books that I looked at was the Maloney Leukemia Virus and the Gross Poly, I think it was a Gross Polyoma Virus. And of course, as you know, polyoma is one of the things I've kind of uh, made, I think, important contributions. So mm-hmm. the viral thing, it's like a bad B movie. It's like aliens in you. They're not really alive. They've already always fascinated me. And yeah, yeah, viruses. And now we got COVID. <laughs> yeah. So so I have to say that as a high schooler, I was reading uh, Ball Four by Jim Bouton and also The Bronx Zoo. But you were reading uh, about viruses, polyoma viruses and Rouse sarcoma viruses. So no wonder you're uh, a professor like 15 years before I was. Well, that's because you're at Hopkins. They're kind of a slow moving train in that department. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, tell me about the viral work, both with uh, CMV and with polyomaviruses. Yeah. So what happened with CMV, when I got in the transplant, there was no antiviral agent for it. So mm-hmm. the only thing you could do is stop the immune suppression and hope that they didn't reject or they didn't die. Mm-hmm. So, and sometimes they got CMV retinitis and they went, the patients went blind. So it was really kind of horrible um, towards the end of my fellowship, they had this new drug, DHPG, which eventually was gancyclovir. Mm-hmm. They had to do like retinal biopsies and all kinds of things to get the drug. Mm-hmm. And then during my fellowship, what had happened in the basic science part of it, I had also, there's this new technique. It was called polymerase chain reaction. <laughs> it was really new at the time. Wow. So I just decided that we should monitor for this rather than, well, encyclopedia came out, but you had to give it to people and you gave it IV and it was, you know, it's just a chemical. It should be cheap, but I learned it's not. And it's quite expensive, especially when you have to get a central line and you have to get a durable medical equipment and get it twice a day and have a home health nurse come out, all this stuff. So I said, maybe a better way would be instead of, and, and to avoid the side effects, Let's do this preemptive, but we got to have something that we can use very early to find when the virus is there before it causes a problem. I said, let's do PCR. And then I hooked up with uh, Greg Storch. So he's a pretty famous virologist, was at WashU. He was a real mentor to me. I mean, he's a real mentor. And we did this study of preemptive versus deferred therapy. And then we went on and an oral GAN cyclovir became available. And uh, we started using it. I, you know, it doesn't have a very good bioavailability. I thought it wouldn't do much, but I wanted to do something. I got some funding from the Missouri Kidney Program. And early on, we saw that this thing completely prevented the virus from being reactivated. So the Annals of Internal Medicine and I have a long relationship. I submit my best stuff and they turn it down, which was the case <laughs> for this and many other things later on in life. And, uh, but yeah, it was amazing. Because it really worked. As then Valgan Cyclovir came. And then the other thing with all this, I got into pharmacoeconomics. I worked with some really great people, Mark Schnitzer, Bob Woodward at WashU, who are economists, but especially Mark, he really understood transplantation. Um, in fact, I was his mentor for his K grant. It was really good. The BK thing came about because I was one of the people using cyclospore when most of the people were, uh, were using tacrolimus, FK. And I just thought you couldn't have your cake and eat it too. You couldn't get the low rejection rates with tacrolimus without having horrible infection. So again, using the same model, we monitored blood and urine for BK weekly with PCR. If it turned positive, we did not have a quantitative assay 
initially. We get in the blood, not the urine. We made sure they were lowering everything. But if it turned positive in the blood, we immediately stopped the anometabolite and never restarted it again. And that's what I'd done for CMV. Because when I trained small, there was, well, when I trained back at the Brigham, there was cyclosporine, azathioprine, and prednisone. No one used induction therapy. And what happened was they decided they were going to use this IKEA monoclonal antibody. And so not to confuse things, they used that with azathioprine versus azathioprine. So I got to see what transplant was like in the 1960s. And I remember we had did 75 transplants that year at a 75% BGF rate, 75% um, rejection rate and 75% one-year graft survival. So that's how not to do transplant. And in fact, when I tried to become medical director, when I, after my fellowship moved first to Nebraska, Doug Norman, who was the president said, you didn't learn how to do transplant. You learned how not to do transplant. <laughs> so when I got to Nebraska, the surgeons were there were, we don't need three drugs. We only use two. And we use cyclosporine and prednisone and we don't use much prednisone. And so I got to see how that worked. And I also saw that a lot, the infection rates were a lot less. Came to WashU and I had inherited a Minnesota program that had Minnesota ALG and then ATGAM and really heavy handed. But the surgeon who was there, um, Todd Howard, had been at Cedars Sinai. And he said, you know, I think they're just using too much immune suppression. You got to help me fix this. And we came up with this less is more. And that's 30 years with that. So the BK thing, we showed that, yeah, that worked. And then we did a five-year follow-up, like we'd done the five-year follow-up for CMV, and then a 10-year follow-up, and showed that was really useful. And that's been really informative for me for many years, but now especially in the time of COVID. As, as you know, with uh, Bill Werbel's work here, MMF is just poison. And it, you just do not develop a uh, antibody response if you're on it to, to COVID. Interestingly, you do if you're on azathioprine. So here's an interesting thing. Why is that? Why is that? So I have this long list of stuff because after I finished my fellowship, they tried to recruit me back to Iowa. And at the end of my talk, they said, well, what's your next, next project? I said, don't have one. I realized I was 31 years old. I was shot. I had no more ideas. I was done. Okay, going into private practice. See ya. Thanks for the fish. I'm out of here. <laughs> And then I started writing down little projects. And now I just looked at it because every year the new fellows, I show it to them. It's like up to 278. I've knocked out a bunch of them. But I was just so scared that I would never have another research idea again. Now that's that. Well, the patients uh, teach you that when you're out there seeing patients, you realize all the gaps in knowledge. And then that snaps you back to reality that there's a lot to be studied and there's a lot that's not known yet. So... um you're medical director of the CTC at Hopkins. And so I have a couple of questions related to that. One is, what does that mean? And two is, if you're going to take on a, uh, a role like that, or if somebody's going to take a role, what is it that they need from infectious disease? Because you are one of our most important customers. And for our listeners who want to meet the needs of CTC's uh, comprehensive transplant centers around the country and around the world, what is it that you do and what is it that you need? So the medical director of the CTC at Hopkins is kind of interesting because it's it. I am the inaugural medical director and it came as part of the brainchild of the dean who's retired, the head of surgery who's left. And now they have medicine who's left to have this service line. Two or three are from Iowa, right? Well, uh, both. Yeah, they are. And one was, and Bob Higgins was from Ohio State. So all Midwesterners, good, solid folk. So I like that. 
what I've come to realize with the service line, I, w- I wouldn't adv- advocate for it for any program anywhere. Because the problem is you kind of have oversight of the money, but you really don't and don't, don't have ab- absolute control. And you can influence, but you can't control promotions and, and hires and fires. So it's really, it's, a, it's kind of a limbo uh, role. I think that being said, before I came here, I think the program was a kind of below the diaphragm, a transplant center. And I think I've worked hard to make the heart and lung people and pediatrics feel part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So that's been good. What does it mean practically? I go to a lot of meetings because you can imagine with five different organ systems, there is the selection meetings for everyone. There is the QAPI for everyone, the M&M for everyone. So there's a lot of that, but I think part of the thing is just being present. So I go to your transplant ID ID group meetings. I think they're great. One of the things I haven't been able to make is to make transplant ID truly a part of the CTC, but now when I'm realizing what it can actually do, I'm not sure that's what I want. So working now to make it, as you know, more visible and a major part of the transplant research core here that we have, the TRC with Christine Duran, who is one of the the gang of four directors and Darren Ostrander, who is the the business administrator for the TOID, the Transplant Oncology Infectious Disease Group. So I think that's a way to kind of make that. But even when I'm trying to establish a biorepository, I think that's really important. Um, Had one of those forever that I had started. Precision medicine came in in Hopkins and it's everyone's kind of work on their own little precision medicine piece. So Darren and I just decided to start the repository and Mm -hmm. data repository and biospecimen repository on our own. So how can IDT meet your needs? Well, one of the things I think, um, I think I have changed a little bit of the philosophy. I think before I came here, ID felt reluctant to comment on the immunosuppression use. Mm-hmm. And I hope that I've empowered the infectious disease group to feel that they can. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are opportunistic infections. They take the opportunity of too much immune suppression. That's what it is. So as much as you got, you guys know a lot and we're learning a lot now. So, you know, even a simple statement in a consult, you know, if you can lower the immune suppression or in some way that might be beneficial kind of thing. I think we have a very, very collaborative group at Hopkins. I really, I really like that. That's, that's been great. And I think that also, I think for me, Hopkins, I was about ready to give up on research. Like I said, the, the collaboration here among all the different surgery, medicine, ID, transplants, surgery, it, it has been great for me. I've re- really, really enjoyed that. It's a super strength. Now, if we could get a more... <laughs> An IRB, we could work with a little bit more easily. That would be nice. But that, I think that everyone, they're protecting us from the patients or the patients from us. Yes, which, uh, which brings me to uh, your other area of interest, which is you're a, uh, you've imbibed being an ethicist by uh, uh, marriage, <laughs> but by marriage, family contact. Yeah. <laughs> so t- tell me about your uh, journey through medical ethics. So um, I think in... Uh, in college, there was some very influential professors, and if they weren't teaching philosophy directly, my Greek professor, my history professor, they were really teaching us philosophy as well. But I married a philosopher. I mean, so, and she is, in fact, an ethicist, and uh, mm-hmm. she considers herself to be an ideal utilitarian, and that's kind of her own thing. That's what her uh, PhD thesis was on. And when I listened to Olivia Cates and talk about the ethics, it was interesting when she talks about John Rawls. These are names. Um, I know know these people, or I know of them, I should say. They pop up at dinner at your home? 
all the time. No, actually, there's a funny story. We were going to visit my in-laws when we had it. One of our one of our first kids was born, and we were visiting in Nebraska, and we just got into the High V. That's a grocery store there, very pleasant. And we had rented a, a camera, movie camera, to take pictures in the early days, and we were in the minivan. So we were trying to get it to work, and so I recorded one of those very erudite conversations between us. You know, Susan, Iowa, Nebraska, this really is great. People really are nice here. We had been living in Boston. I mean, and hy V, it really is a smile in every aisle. So that's what we had as a, a erudite conversation. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. All right. With that, let's transition to a case. This is a uh, an illustrative case. This is a, sort of a, of a, a mashup of several different patients, but I thought that it would hit some of the areas that, that you're an expert on. So it's a 52-year-old man with a history of diabetes, hypertension, age-stage kidney disease, and a kidney transplant in June of 2022. Uh, this episode is being recorded in uh, July. Uh, he has a CMV donor positive recipient negative status. He's on tacrolimus, prednisone, MMF, uh, which is mycophenolate mofetil. At uh, w- what's the dose that we use here? Typically two grams. It starts out at a thousand twice a day. That's what they did forever. For I changed it, so you start with that. But as soon as you get a therapeutic tr- tac, we pr- bring it down to five hundred bid. I'll talk more about that to explain why too. So we'll say that that it's two grams uh, or one gram BID for now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's on um, uh, prophylaxis, trimethrim sulfamethoxyl. The white blood cell count has been drifting down and now at 1400 with an absolute neutrophil count of 750. He develops nausea, diarrhea, malaise, sees his primary care doctor, and the urinalysis shows the presence of white cells. The next day, he develops fevers and is admitted to the hospital. Blood cultures are obtained. He started on empiric broad-spectrum antibiotic. The urine culture from uh, a couple of days or the day before he was admitted to the hospital now comes back as E. coli, sensitive to multiple antibiotics, but resistant to the trimethrim sulfamethoxazole. The blood culture comes back as the same organism. He uh, improves and he's ready to be discharged to home. It'll be a different conversation as to what we put him on in terms of IV versus oral antibiotics, but suffice it to say that he is discharged to home and several questions come up. So the first question is, why did this happen? And how are the valgan cyclovir and the mycophenolate involved? Sure. So a um, lot going on in this case. Excellent mashup. This would be great if it were like you're a disc jockey mashing up the song. <laughs> so um, so a uh, couple of things that are going on. You didn't say whether you got induction therapy. If you were here, it probably would have been thiamoglobin. Yes. You didn't say whether he's on valgan cyclovir. Most places would use valgan cyclovir. And you didn't tell me what the creatinine was because that's going to help me to adjust the number of medicines. So sure. with all of that being said, I think this happened because probably two-thirds, I think it's up to two-thirds, I should know this, but two-thirds of patients develop a urinary tract infection up to two-thirds in the first year after transplant. And so that's really why it happens. You've manipulated the genital urinary system, you're on immune suppression, and um, you're just prone to 
to, to getting urinary tract infections. It doesn't help that his, he got leukopenic, and that's probably because of the MMF. When MMF was first approved, it was approved with cyclosporin at a dose of a gram BID, but the cyclosporin lowers the absorption of MMF by about 50% compared to tacrolimus. So really the proper dose of tacrolimus is probably, I mean, uh, MMF with tacrolimus is probably 500 BID. Prednisone, for a long time, they're, they're about 20% of programs get rid of it. If you get rid of it, there's less infection. We're a little slow, but I've got them now to at least get prednisone down to five by, by one month. And we could probably do better than that. The absolute lymph site, the absolute neutrophil compound, <laughs> should show another thing that I pay attention. The ANC is quite low. So there, there are colleagues of mine who would give nupitin. As you know, that's not been shown to improve outcomes. To me, it masks the underlying problem and distracts you from trying to search out what the problem is, like too much immune suppression. Um, Roll you down for a second. So, and yes, the person was on Valgan Cyclovir. And for argument's sake, we'll say that the, uh, that the dose was appropriately adjusted for what the estimated GFR was believed to be, although it's an unperfect number. Uh, so very important point is, is that you're saying that the dose of mycophenolate that's often used, whether it's 1,500 milligrams a day or 2,000 milligrams a day, is too high for patients that are therapeutic on tacrolimus. Correct. Okay. That, I think if anybody takes one teaching point from today, that will be it. And that the next one is that the MMF, um, actually the benefit for preventing rejection probably plateaus three months compared to placebo. So no really benefit. My uh, colleague, Roy Bloom, taught me that a little while ago, and we've been pointing that out. Fevers, blood cultures, yep, started on antibiotics uh, before you have the culture back. Excellent. You got to do that. That's, uh, that's kind of transplant ID 101, right? You don't wait till you've got a, an identified infection and sensitivities because they can deteriorate very quickly. So let's see. So as soon as he came in, the mycophenolate was stopped. Yeah, I pro I would have done that because his because he's so leukopenic. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily do that except for certain viral infections. I do for CMV. I do for BK. I do for COVID. I do for adenovirus. I do for EBV. I don't for a rhinovirus. It's not a virus that is going to, the, the other viruses seem to be a virometer, if you will, or a viral marker of excessive immune suppression. And at first, a little UTI, I wouldn't necessarily decrease the MMF because inflammation can lead to upregulation of class one and class two molecules that can make you prone to rejection. So the re reason to stop it here is because he's, he's very leukopenic and mm -hmm. neutropenic. Mm -hmm. But you would not necessarily stop it automatically for a urinary tract infection. No, no. I would usually for a pneumonia. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, but not necessarily for a uncomplicated urinary tract infection. All right. So now he's, uh, when do you, will you go back to putting him on the, and, and at what dose of the mycophenolate? Yeah. So the thing here is, first of all, I'd wait till he recovers. And I, I recover at a minimum would be a white count of 3,000 and an ANC of 1,000. A, a that would be like kind of a minimum that I would say that, okay, let's, we can go back. And I'd start at half the dose. Now, another thing with that, Shmuel, MMF has a half-life of 17 hours. Mm -hmm. So why do we give it twice a day? Mm -hmm. And I've even seen it give four times a day here. Oh, because that reduces GI toxicity. Eh, no. The way the pharmacokinetics work, it's pretty flat. If you've got GI toxicity from MMF, you've just got too much MMF. Mm -hmm. You need to give less. So again, trying to get people to a once-a-day drug that it improves adherence 
I'd probably start them at 500 once a day. Mm-hmm. That's what I would do. Oh, and the other thing with the Valgan cyclovir, MMF and Valgan cycler work together to cause neutropenia. Mm-hmm. And so people will say, oh, the neutropenia is from the backroom. Well, no, it's not. But yeah, it's in the book. It can cause it, but it is so rare. It's not it. And then Valgan cyclovir, yeah, it can, especially if you are using too high a dose. So I generally go lower on, for prophylaxis and higher for treatment. So, um, uh, the, and the normal dose is supposedly 900 for prophylaxis. The way the kinetics are, it's probably better to give it 900 once a day to get the peak level above three micrograms per ml, which is the effective concentration 50 in the LD50 for the virus. So you don't get resistance, which I think people see donor positive, recipient negative. Oh, we need to give them more Valgan cyclovir. So, I mean, you're an ID doc. If you saw... Uh, 200,000 copies of E. coli, would you double the dose of amoxicillin? I guess it depends on how much of the day was spent over the uh, MIC or whether the, uh, it depends on the pharmacokinetics of the drug and how, and whether that I was in a a safe place with those, or if I was just scratching the uh, surface of uh, efficacy. Yeah. So the thing is, Robin would be Robin Avery would be worried about resistance, but that comes from using too low of a dose in the face of too much immune suppression. So mm-hmm. if you if you have leukopenia, get rid of the MMF and then use a real dose of the Valgan cyclovir. But like I said, it goes like this so that it'd be better to get a higher peak to prevent resistance. So give 900 once a day if someone had a GFR of, say, 85, which is pretty rare. Most people, transplant patients, have a GFR of 50. 50 mm-hmm. to 60 tops. So mm-hmm. the normal dose should be probably 450 a day. Oh, Valgan cyclovir is much better absorbed with food. Key point, key, 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 key point. Tacrolimus is much better absorbed without food. That's about my only recommendations for food and drugs. So Valgan cyclovir take with food, yep. tacrolimus without food. I wonder if there's a good mnemonic to remember. You know, I, I love mnemonics and I haven't thought of one, but I do know it this way. I tell people the maybe you'll remember it this way. Put your tacrolimus on your bedstand. Wake up, take your tacrolimus, go to the bathroom, brush your teeth, shave, take a shower, then you can eat. And Valgan cyclovir, you take it the other way. <laughs> All right. So Valgan cyclovir after the oatmeal. Exactly. All right. Great. So according to my Google clock here, I have just a few minutes to go. So um, perhaps we can uh, finish up with uh, some questions. Uh, one question I have is that years ago, we got excited briefly over a product called Immuno, which was uh, going to tell us how much immunosuppressive medications we can use so that we get right in the sweet spot, no rejection, no infection. That didn't work. Is there something else like that that's coming uh, Cell-free there, DNA. There, I don't yeah, know. There's kind of two things out there that people are talking about. One is the whole role of the, the donor-drive cell-free DNA, the gene expression profile, the new CMV test to see whether they're they're useful. You're like a like, like a T spot. It's a it's CMV spot that might mm-hmm. be helpful to figure that out. And then people have been talked about early on uh, with uh, Greg Storch and I got really excited about a Nello virus. The guy, mm-hmm. And in Stanford, when they discovered the donor drive selfie DNA and its utility, they're looking at using a Nello virus to be useful. If it's useful, I think it's going to be on an individual basis. So it's not going to be like a sodium. It's going to be like you will have your own Nello virus load that tells you when you're over immune suppressed, under immune suppressed, or 
like you said, the Goldilocks just right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, I remember you sharing some of those articles and I had to uh, struggle through reading an uh, article in Science or Nature to try to understand it. And uh, I think it was Cell. It was a really good no. article. It's, it's, worth, it's worth the effort. It's worth the squeeze. Now, in your field, just like in our field, we're having a uh, crisis in terms of talent. The talent that we have is fantastic, but the spigot of talent is a trickle. Any ideas as to how to improve the uh, the pipeline of great people? I mean, I look at some of the young people coming in up in transplant nephrology, and, and they're so far ahead of where I was. Same thing with infectious disease, but there's just not many of them. Yeah, I'm not sure. I do think that if I had a crystal ball, we're going to be using APPs, the decision extenders, a lot in a lot of different ways. And then, and maybe that's not so bad. You know, if you have a team leader that's, uh, you know, doing all the reading and keeping up to date and everything. Uh, for example, Shmuel, my wife wanted to go back to grad school when we first moved here and she was 57. And so she had to get an MMR. You know, are you kidding me? She's mm -hmm. not going to be pregnant. But you couldn't get a hold of a uh, primary care doctor, so she went to the CVS and saw a nurse practitioner who ordered the MMR tests, you know, and or or the, the antibody titer testing, whatever. And I see that over and over, right? I think that's just the way the future is going to be. Yeah, well, we've been very lucky here, both in the inpatient and the outpatient, that some of our APPs are just stellar. As a consulting physician, I love working with the residents, but there, there is just something uh, so economical or so efficient, efficient. efficient. about working with the uh, APPs that we have, that they just do it day in, day out, and, and they're fantastic and get things done. So it's a model that I would definitely support. Yep. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything that you think our listeners should hear that I missed? No, I think uh, they hit on the high spots. Less is more. Stop the MMF. Oh, we didn't talk about the vitamin D. Another lecture. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we, we do have a little bit of time. Uh, if we talked about somebody calls you and they say that they have COVID and you say stop the MMF and start aspirin and start vitamin D, what is the deal with vitamin D? So with all of those, this is epidemiologically based. And so aspirin has been shown in transplant patients to be associated. It's an association with better outcomes. Vitamin D, we did a bunch of stuff that I published in various ways showing that low vitamin D is associated with UTIs. And other people have showed that as well. So we like to give vitamin D. And then early on, work out of Maryland showed if you're on aspirin and on vitamin D and had a normal vitamin D level, when you came in with COVID, you're less likely to progress to a... Uh, need a ventilator, die. Subsequently, a randomized controlled trial is so shown with COVID that giving vitamin D doesn't do anything for those who are in the hospital and sick. And um, of course, it, the cat may be out of the bag. And then also atorvastatin was another one for its anti-inflammatory properties. And then even when regular people, they said, well, aspirin may not be so good. But the subsequent article was that if you had been on aspirin, don't stop the aspirin. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is epidemi epidemiology associated stuff that Hopkins is pretty famous for. But it turns that um, all the things that we did were by association. There is some logic behind it. Kind of the proof was in the pudding, though, Schmuel, when the rest of the world was getting 30% mortality, 20 to 30% in their transplant patients, we were getting 2 to 5%. Uh -huh. So we had a great team of you guys, excellent, the Willa Cochran, the other NPs and all the other solid organ transplant service. And that was something we also did. We moved us away from a physician-run um, approach to a NP and team leader 
So lead coordinator group, because they could just get things done quicker. They understood Epic better. They got it done. They called the Baltimore Convention Center to get monoclonal antibodies or convalescent plasma, whichever, whatever we could get at the uh, remdesivir or whatever, get them admitted when they needed to be admitted. We sent out a care package, which included an oximeter and a notebook to record your signs, your vitals and symptoms. And with parameters, if your O2SAT dropped below 95%, we wanted you admitted. Later on with Omicron, we lowered that to 92 because we were seeing that people weren't getting as sick and they could tolerate that. So those are some of the, there were medical things and there were process things. The big thing was, and uh, people would ask, well, when do you restart the MMF? And I said, well, never, it, you don't need it. But people feel uncomfortable with that. So they would, and, and we'll see. And then all the data started coming out from the, the from the ERGOT group and Bill Werbel and Dory and everything, Brian Boyarski about how MMF, if you're on MMF, 500 BID or more, you are not going to make antibody. Mm-hmm. And that's probably our best biomarker of whether you have any kind of protection to that. And as you know, Bill shared recently that, uh, that you can't hope and believe that there's a T-cell response that's controlling the viral infection. That's probably not happening either. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so my feeling is that COVID is not going away. This, to me, like BK in kidney, has been a little bit of a gift from the transplant gods, and we shouldn't we shouldn't reject it. So it's it's a sign. It's a sign. So you can go with lower immune suppression. That's something else, Shmuel, that I uh, sent out to everyone. Pay attention to the ALC. Your case talked about the ANC, and we all know it about that. But Ray Zanabel, uh, another famous transplant ID doc, mm-hmm. uh, published as a, as Dave Snydman, another famous transplant ID doc, on um, an A. NALC, an absolute lymphocyte count below 0.7 or 700, being a setup for infectious disease and malignancy. Mm -hmm. So what I asked preemptively for all the coordinators to pay attention, and if you were, I had an ALC of one or below, think about lowering the MMF. If it were below 0.7, you should probably hold it maybe indefinitely, at least till their ALC got above one. We see a lot of that in kidney because we use uh, thymoglobulin and thymoglobulin is lymphocyte depleting for decades. I mean, not weeks, not months, decades. And wow. you, you can see that when you see someone long-term and you see them in clinic and someone has an absolute lymphocyte count of 2,500, you say, oh, you got basiliximab. And the other person is, you know, they've got one of 1.2. Well, they got thymo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or camp path. Mm-hmm. So you did mention something that was intriguing to me. Mycophenolate does not equal azathioprine. Yeah. So so in the original studies, when it was being approved, MMF was compared to nothing or it was compared to azathioprine. And you can't tell from, the, from what's published on the dose of azathioprine, but it was lowish, 50 to 100. And that's pretty low. But the, with the, in the stuff that's, that uh, Bill and... Brian Boresk and Dory and others are publishing in Europeans as well, is that ASA, people on ASA are still able to mount an immune response to the COVID vaccine. I don't get it entirely. We think of them as the same. We think of cyclosporin and tacrolimus as the same, but they're different in different ways. So it's more than just a side effect profile. It's also the, uh, the efficacy. Yeah, probably the mechanism of action. You know, we think of them both as anti-metabolites. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so MMF blocks IMPDH, azathioprine blocks xanthine or is metabolized by xanthine oxidase, you know, thioguanine. I mean, it's, uh, it's like mercaptopurine is what it's like. So, mm-hmm. 
All right, last question. So uh, Cubs are playing the uh, Cardinals. What goes on in your family during those days? <laughs> that's really, that's good. I grew up in Chicago. And so I'm a lifelong Cubs fan, moved to St. Louis for 24 years. The difference, it's as a joke, the difference between Wrigley Field, where the Cubs play and, and Bush Stadium is in October. What is it? Get a hot dog in Bush Stadium in October. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> They're always in the playoffs, right? And the Cubs, at any rate. So it really came to a, a crucial event when I took my son to Wrigley Field and they're playing the Cardinals in Wrigley Field. So I, I adopted, okay, for the home team. But there's a problem, though, when I'm in and, you know, with my son, who's a, a Cardinals fan. And I say, you know, shut up, you little bastard, because it impugns both me and him. Then <laughs> 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 he's rooting for the Cardinals. <laughs> There we go. There we go. It was worse because I I was just in Chicago and the Cubs were playing the Orioles and the Orioles were hot. And I mean, and there was like 6,000 Oriole fans out of 31,000 at Wrigley Field. And when they did that, the Star Spangled Banner, O's say, can you see? Yeah. It was deafening. (laughs) It was fun. Orioles won. (laughs) Orioles won. All right. So now you have uh, three teams in two divisions to uh, juggle. Yep. And I still hate the Yankees. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, uh, members of the uh, audience, for being part of this conversation. And please do send comments or uh, questions or topics that you'd like to hear about on Twitter or by email. And we'll see you next month.